Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, well, it depends, I guess, when you're listening to this podcast. Hi, it's Brett Sasso with the Deserve Podcast, uh, coming to you after a pretty, a pretty interesting webinar that we did this week. So Wednesday, uh, I, I put out a last minute. Um, I don't like to call it a marketing piece. How about an invitation for folks that have followed us in the past about what I wanted to talk about on the webinar? And, and I, I actually had to come in and and build that presentation same day, which is typically like I'm already building next two weeks from now. I'm building the next webinar because I try to make it not just the same thing all over and over again. We get a lot of repeat visitors to to the webinar, but things had happened the night before or the day of my, my days get so confused. I can't actually put a stakeholder in the calendar anymore, but this, this event actually happened from what they refer to as one of the biggest doves in the FOMC federal reserve. And her name is Lael Brainerd. Uh, Lael, who is the, has been nominated, she actually probably would have been positioned to be the Fed chair if President Biden hadn't continued the term of, of Powell. So she's the, the vice chair. So basically, she's the heir apparent to the chairman should Powell get really nervous and want to get out, which I, I have to say that if I was in, in a late part of my career, what's going on, I would be the one saying, you know, I think it's time to retire. I think I want to punch the clock and I want to get out because this is a tiger by the tail. So I, I've asked Brian to come in today. So Brian works upstairs in our in our studio building here. Uh, I'm down in the in the studio. This is if you notice the shot looks a little familiar. Well, my desk is normally here, and when I do the the webinars, we roll in a, a little podium, and this is traditionally the way I, I do webinars is from this room. So it's a you know soundproof ceiling, glass like a studio between myself and the other offices. So I asked Brian to come in, and I wanted to talk about this because Brian is a financial advisor. I am not, and I never try to. I've never wanted to be number one, and I'm not, and I will never be a financial advisor. And a big part of that is the fear of getting it wrong, right? I just, I have no idea how I could go to sleep at night telling an entire group of people, I got gotcha. you. Don't worry about your your whole retirement future I got you. Go to sleep. I'm I'm here. I couldn't do it. I just don't have the stomach for it. And I think that has to do with failing. I have failed in my life more than one time. Financially failed. And it's a hard thing to do. It it tears you apart. It, it rips the your confidence. It it rips your soul out of you when you fail financially. And and failing isn't always something that you do yourself. It's not, you know, that you're too lazy to get out of bed. It's it's Sometimes it's conditions that you can't control. And I made that part of my life going forward is I know how it feels to fail. I know how it feels to go from having everything and feeling wonderful and in a matter of months having nothing and wondering how you're going to make the next day. And that may be what's happening right now. We may be positioning ourselves to be impacted by something that's, that's massive and consequential. And most people, if not everyone listening to this podcast, is a baby boomer. So I'm a baby boomer. Brian, is, you'll probably tell if you're watching this on camera, he's not a baby boomer. He's, he's young. Um, 
but I'm not, and I'm and I'm seasoned, and I'm salty, and I'm I'm scarred, and I'm battled, and I I have learned not to be optimistic about everything. So the reason I brought Brian in is because there's a little bit of a of a divide here between how we think. He is a schooled economist. Okay, I'm not. I'm a vocationally trained business person. Um, he is a financial advisor, as I mentioned before. He can manage your money and he can do all wonderful things for you. I am not. I maintain basic licensing in the financial space so that I can talk about things that would require such. Um, so I, I do not offer to manage money. Um, again, scared to death of it. So, Brian, thank you for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brett. And the topic is tough, right? The topic is something that we're... I'm not going to limit this to the normal 30 minutes that I try to hit on the podcast. And I don't think that's fair that I do because I think this topic is really important. And before I jump into the conversation with Brian, I want to offer every I want to offer something to you listening to this podcast today that I think will be um, very impactful and, and potentially retirement saving if uh, if you are not yet of the mindset that things are really bad and they're probably going to get worse and you think everything is wonderful and you haven't got a phone call yet from your financial advisor to tell you to the contrary, everything is status quo. We go, we go, we go. Well, there's a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Grantham and Jeremy is, uh, there's a, there's a bunch of accolades that go with him. He's the co-founder of Boston's GMO he is basically 50 years in the investment world, and he's considered somewhat of an icon because of his ability to call bubbles. Uh, most importantly, the Japanese Nikkei bubble, the dot-com bubble, the COVID little tiny crash, uh, and then where he's, where he's at today. And there's a fantastic video that I found last night as I was looking around, you know, not being able to sleep. I found his interview on Bloomberg. Now, I like that because Bloomberg, in my opinion, on financial matters is real news. It's, it's, not, it's, not, being, it's not being customized to their, their narrative. It's, it's real. And this interview with Jeremy, it's probably about 30 minutes long. And I've now watched and listened to that three times. Last night, again, when I came in this morning, and then a few minutes before we started doing this podcast. Brian hasn't, I don't believe, right? You haven't, no, listened I haven't to watched it. it. All right, so this is great. So I get to be right because if you watch the video, I'm going to have all the talking points. But And I, I think that's good because I didn't learn anything from Jeremy other than I really respect everything he said, and it just happens to align perfectly with everything that we've been talking about at Retirement Architecture now for the last couple of years. So with that said, I want to talk to Brian a little bit about how he's sleeping at night as a financial advisor and whether he's communicating to his clients that there might be a little bit of a, of a headwind here that might be more than just a, a breeze. This might be a tornado that's coming our way. So Brian, in, enlighten us as to the mindset of someone who manages millions of dollars of other people's money. What, what are you thinking right now? What's in your mind? Well, I think we're definitely in uncharted territory. You know, um, this is a, a point in the bull market, right? Last 12 year bull market. We're definitely, if not at the end, towards the end. Right. So, um, you know, we look at, at the expansion in the stock market, especially after COVID, 
so much of that had to do directly with monetary policy. Four trillion dollars. Yeah, four or five trillion. Getting dumped in with about I think it was about five trillion. Dumped in with a wheelbarrow into the economy. The largest quantitative easing program ever. Um and and basically every QE program since oh eight has been bigger than its predecessor and this one bigger than the last three combined. Um, and let's, that's, let's, let's, let's take QE part a little bit. Cause QE is one of those little, you know, acronyms that people throw around and not everybody really gets it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I've, I, I'm careful when I ask people about that because I don't ever want to insult somebody's yeah. intelligence, but on a podcast, you can't insult anybody's yeah. intelligence. Let's talk about QE. What, yeah, so what QE is, is quantitative easing. Yeah. There's a program really developed after 08 at least coined after 08. And it's a process in which the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States prints money, I guess digitally, they don't actually print dollars anymore, but they digitally print money, add money to the, the monetary system. How do they do that? How do they get the money in the monetary system? So they, they go and they actually buy securities. So, so the federal government is borrowing money. So they're issuing treasuries, bonds, and bills. But doesn't this money get into the, the system by depositing it into the, the big banks? Isn't that through, how this money... Through the money- purchase of mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, the Federal Reserve is injecting money in two ways. Multiple ways. They're also buying corporate bonds. But primarily in two ways. The the $9 trillion balance sheet is made up primarily by treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Um, I think it's a 60-40 split or 70-30 split as far as what they buy. But, they, but they'll buy... They'll buy the treasuries from the federal government, which gives the federal government money. So let's say they're buying a trillion dollars worth of assets. That's a trillion dollars printed. That's a trillion dollar QE program. If they buy $700 billion worth of treasuries, that gives the federal government $700 billion to spend. That's one way it gets into the system. So this is out of traditional market buying. They're not concerned about value. They're not concerned about price tags. They're just buy, yeah. buy, 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 Oh, yeah, buy, it doesn't buy, matter right? what interest rate the federal government's giving them. They don't care. They'll buy anything. And, in fact, a lot of QE programs around the world are buying negative interest rate debt. You know, we don't have negative interest rates here, but the Bank of Japan and, and some of these European banks issue negative yielding debt, and their central banks are buying it in a QE program and actually paying to lend money, which is a negative interest rate. But back to QE, what, what they're doing is the Federal Reserve is injecting money through into the system in in two ways. They're giving it to the federal government, which is and then the federal government spends the money. And then they're buying mortgage backed securities from the banks. That's the way that you were mentioning where it's injecting directly into the, the banking system. But the third way where it's really increasing asset prices is when it when the Federal Reserve is the biggest buyer at the auction of treasuries, they don't care what interest rates are being utilized. So they'll buy it at low interest rates, which keeps interest rates low on the long end of the curve, which entices everybody else to not buy those securities and to buy stocks instead. So that's in essence why you've seen a rise in the stock market is is kind of the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates and printing money and injecting all that money, not only giving the consumers more money through federal government programs and low mortgage rates, um, but also just just pushing them to buy risk-based assets like the stock market. And and this is north of $9 trillion now. So Correct. there's $9 trillion on the books at the Fed. Yep. And that's a that's basically a asset, quote, air quotes around asset, that the Fed has to do something with, right? It's it's not really 
are are they collecting the the mortgage? Actually, I know the answer to this because I, I I watched a, uh, a a old connection of mine on his uh, channel this morning, and they were saying how when when these mortgage backed securities are actually getting paid, the money's just getting diluted into the system. Into the security itself. It's right? basically not going, it's it's not it's really a package. Yeah. And it has an interest rate yield. I'm sure the mortgage backed security has some type of yield that the Federal Reserve is receiving. But it's not it's not in the economy. It's it's just stuck in this big Federal Reserve balance sheet. Yeah, it's a, and it's a, it's majority a revolving of door. Money yeah. in, money out. Well, money and in, it's money more out. money out. So of every course. time they get paid a certain amount in yield, they're buying more than that uh, that month in securities, and they're still buying it today. So, so this is a manipulation by the government, and this isn't conspiracy manipulation. To this keep is interest rates. This was down. strategic to keep interest rates low to get the economy to be more healthy and to give the which really to, hasn't well, needed to, that and to monetize the federal government. The federal government would be unable to do all these social programs if it wasn't for the Fed of buying all the assets because they would be a regular consumer of treasuries would require a much higher interest rate. So this has been going on for a long time. This has been primarily since 2008. I mean, yes, before that the Fed balance sheet in 2008 was, I think around, don't quote me on the number around 2 trillion. So so now we go into the Obama, the Bush handoff to Obama, right? So Bush put together this, let's call it a QE, uh, necessary strategy to help after 9-11. Yeah. Well, and then Obama walked right into this and said, okay. Uh, yeah, after, I, after 08, I mean, and I, I forget me on the years here. Um, the beginning of 08, that was Bush or Obama? When it was Ob- Obama transition. came in January of 08. Is that when it happened? Or was he elected in 08? He was no, he o- came in January of 09, right? Correct. But the, so the, Bush was, the, was overseeing the initial part of this. It was transitional. It was right. during that time period. The, the approval was go spend it. Right. And once Congress says go spend it, the, the administration has to spend it. I'm not trying to defend anybody here. And, and ben Obama Bernanke, or any of them. Ben Bernanke is probably the guy who who kind of told everybody that this was a temporary process. Right. That the QE was a temporary fix for the financial crisis. Because fundamentally, it never will have a good outcome if it's left unbridled. If it's just continuously added to happens. the balance sheet, then that's inflation. So, so to combat the natural forces of the dollar crashing, right? Because when, when a government says, hey, we're going to print a bunch of money and buy all these assets, then the rest of the world will say, oh, well, that currency is going to fall. And the reason the dollar didn't fall was because there was a, a, a market consensus that the QE program was going to be temporary mm-hmm. and that the Fed would be able to unwind the balance sheet and raise interest rates back to a normalized rate. Which has not happened. And it's it was a lie since the second they said it but it's now obvious that it's a lie because we're now nine trillion in and they're going to just start to unwind it apparently next month so that's that's the biggest part not the biggest part you know when on the webinar i started off for those of you that didn't see it i found i was looking for dominoes so the thing that comes to mind is when a domino falls dominoes continue to fall right as long as they're lined up they continue to fall what I didn't know is the physics behind the domino falling, that a domino falling could actually knock over a domino that's one and a half times bigger than the domino itself. Um, and I found this really cool video. Some, some uh, He's got to obviously be a, an instructor, teacher, professor. And he did. He took a little tiny, it almost looked like the size of a tic-tac, and he stood it up 
and then he had 13 more dominoes, all one and a half times bigger. So when you do that math, obviously it doesn't take long to have a very large domino. So I think it was 13 dominoes long, and he had this little tiny, you know, tic-tac type domino in the beginning. And the last one was a meter tall and was about 100 pounds. And it had about a four-inch base on it. So it wasn't like it was just teetering, ready to fall over. And sure enough, when he pushed over the little tiny chiclet, it knocked every single domino down, including the last one, which was three feet tall, over three feet tall, and 100 pounds. Then he went on to say that if he continued the stack to 29 dominoes, the last one would be as tall as the Empire State Building, and it would fall. What's the point of that? Well, I, I segued right into that the first domino that I believe in this current crisis building is the consumer. I believe the consumer is the first domino that will fall in this, this incredibly volatile powder keg that we have as an economy and, and, and as a country. And for the baby boomer audience, us, right? This is a really potentially consequential thing for us. So I believe the first domino is falling. The consumer, you, you looked up the numbers after I told you this, 15 trillion was... Was added in... in um, 2021, right? 15? Fourth quarter 21 in, in uh, credit. No, well, the total is total 15 credit. trillion. That's total mortgages, automobiles, yeah, credit I forget cards. the number, but it was a record as far as the most credit card ever added in a quarter so, in the 22 years that Wells Fargo was tracking it. So why study. is that happening, right? You're listening to this going, okay, wait a minute. So... That's actually saying that the consumer has been making the economy so strong because they're spending like banshees again. Once COVID was over and they basically re, they paid off a lot of debt, the consumer, during the COVID 2020 stay at home, don't do anything. That's when people said, well, I might as well pay my pills off. I can't go anywhere. But then it exploded after that, right? Call it a, a resurgence of, of credit spending and the economy has been the the benefactor of that spending but now that domino is a little precarious because the consumer is starting to run out of juice and i've seen this play out before i've seen it in 2000 i i think that what we have coming together right now is a combination of multiple bu bubbles bursting and if you do listen to jeremy grantham and anthony we can put the link on rothwebinar.com. So I'm going to have Anthony, if you go to rothwebinar.com, roth, R-O-T-H, webinar.com, all one word, we'll have the link here to this video that I keep referring to. And it's a, it's a must-see, guys. It's, it is a, it's one of the most articulate explanations of what I'm trying to articulate, and I can't do it nearly as, as good as, as Jeremy Grantham did in, in this video interview on Bloomberg. But with the consumer running out of fuel. It's the worst time it can happen, right? I, so the, the financial gas tank is starting to get drained. And what's the next thing we hear talking about besides the fact that the Fed is going to start to unwind a balance sheet that, that would choke a, a world? Inflation being fought by interest rates. What does that do? What's the economic uh, effect of tightening interest rates when people uh, are, are getting overextended? Yeah, I mean, and tightening. So I would almost argue that there's two big dominoes and obviously the biggest or the most powerful one is the, is a consumer. 
So there's there's two things. Let's just talk about the stock market. Forget about the economy. The consumers is the the big part of that. What slows down an Everything. economy? It's the whole thing. But from a stock price perspective, there's two factors that go into a stock price. The first is the earnings of the company. So the consumer spending less is going to reduce earnings. So right now earnings are high. Yeah, yeah. Earnings have been good. You know, earnings overall. are good. Right, they're solid, and prices are also high, right? Right, so, because so, so there's two factors that go into a stock price. You have the earnings, mm-hmm. and then you have the multiple of the earnings, which causes the, the stock price. And, then, and both things have been expanded with this QE program and the Fed balance sheet. So not only when you, when you print the money, right, you basically give the consumers additional capital. So that creates better earnings. Yep. And at the same time, you lower interest rates and that creates a higher acceptable multiple. So the acceptable multiple for a price of a stock has gone up as the risk-free rate has gone down. That's a economic calculation. And this so can as the be risk- measured on, if you want to follow this at home, I, I do it on almost every webinar. The Schiller PE ratio is kind right. of a way to measure this across the S and P or the Dow. So yeah, exactly. So the PE ratio now is, I don't know, 32. Times it's, earnings. it's down because, of course, right. the markets are pulling back. still so. fairly high. And the reason it's high is because the average investor does not want to invest in bonds or interest rate vehicles because interest rates have been so low. So, so they're so willing to put pay a, a higher multiple for the stocks. So not only is the acceptable multiple up, but the earnings are up. So in December, and the reason I know this is, again, it's on all the webinars. In December, at the end of the year... The Schiller P.E. ratio, the multiple of companies price that they are getting paid or their stock is trading at versus their earnings was 40. It actually went to 40, which I was predicting for two years that it would go to 40. It hit 40. Now, it has only hit 40 two other times. And when I say 40, I'm talking the exact number 40. If you go backwards in time, it hits it on the way down from the high in 2000. And then you just cross it a little bit longer and it hits it again on the way up from 2000. So at at that point, there's never been another time since the, the P.E. ratio, I believe, has been back back tested that it's ever come that close. So to your point, if, if companies start making less money and those prices were to stay the same, in other words, what we're buying stock for. Well, yeah. This so, PE so, ratio would jump up. So let's just massively. say, you know, based on 0% interest rates, a 32 times earnings was acceptable for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And then, so so then if earnings go down, the price has to go down if you're going to follow that same 32 times earnings. Well, as interest rates come up, the acceptable price to earnings might go down to 25. So now you have another factor that causes a decrease in stock prices. So the stock market going down by by a significant percentage, is driven by both factors. Not only is the consumer slowing, it's going to reduce earnings, inflation's increasing, also reducing earnings. But then secondly, the interest rates are rising, which causes a multiple compression. A, an acceptable multiple now is lower because I can get a better interest rate on a fixed income mm. vehicle. So you have two pressures on stock prices to go down. And you have, a, and you have a, the same pressure on bond prices to go down. Because interest rates are going up. So you have a reduction in stock and bond prices. And and that's what I where you look at the stock market. There is nowhere well we could talk a little bit about a few things that I think are mispriced that but um 
overall, the stock market and the bond market over are overpriced. And so you should see reductions in both markets. Okay, so that's that's just one of the pieces to this complicated puzzle. Oil is another piece of the puzzle. I have been... More pressure on earnings. Oh, my and gosh. And consumer spending, again, pressure on earnings. I, I chased the dot-com real catalyst to that, to the price of oil. If you look back, and again, I demonstrate this all the time, the price of oil was massively high in June of 2008. That was the precursor for the collapse, which happened later in that year um, when people couldn't afford their... Here's, here's what people are going through. I have a choice. I can put gas in my car and go to work, or, and I can pay for my bills, right? My food, my electric, et cetera, or I could pay my mortgage. It became a point of people horse trading on what they would pay because everything got so expensive. And oil was that tipping point because oil will drive inflation up as well. Everything costs more. At the time I was, I was doing some construction still and I, they started putting surcharges on everything. Like if you bought concrete, it would come in, they would raise the price of the concrete. And then just for the heck of it, they'd throw another $100 on top as a surcharge for fuel, which I believe they kept on after that because they don't like to give back things that they take when it comes to capitalism and, and, and uh, retail. So oil is also a part of this equation right now. So we've got oil that is being very resilient at above $90. Um, I have heard that oil should never go back below $80. And I heard some things on, on CNBC on the radio earlier today where they actually want to try to create some kind of import tax to keep oil around $80. They're saying we'd be better off stabilizing oil than letting it be so volatile. And, and that was kind of like making Becky quick on the thing go crazy. Like, wait a minute, you're talking about price, price fixing? That's, that's insane. So oil, another piece of the puzzle. So we got a Federal Reserve that's got to try to give it a $9 trillion somehow that's on its balance sheet, which nobody in the world wants to buy, right? Who wants to buy that crap? Is anybody out there saying, hey, give me some of that low interest rate gook that you guys have, that you fabricated? No. So that's going to be a problem. We got inflation going up, putting pressure which, which, on the Which, by the consumer. way, not only is the Fed going to want to sell the balance sheet, but so are all the other governments around the world. If bond prices are going down, why would they want to hold these right. same crappy treasuries? They're going to be selling them too. Yeah. So you got the treasury selling them. You got the all the other central banks around the world selling U.S. treasuries. Uh, by the way, we're going to pass probably Build Back Better, so they're going to they're going to be selling treasuries. You know, there's going to be a huge flood of treasuries even into they, the market. Even if they don't pass Build Back Better. <clears throat> Yeah, By the way, anybody the that creates an alliteration of bees for a program should should go back to like <laughs> marketing 101. Build back better. Um, Peter Piper picked it. You know, just what are they? But the idea that we don't have a it's choice. So he could Brian. remember it. He we, needed the three bees. So he, yeah, could remember he, he needed the three bees. My last name is Biden. He, he, he got it. <laughs> and there's, let's see, I got Hunter. Nah. So the the idea here is even if they don't pass build back better, they're still going to run about $2 trillion in the hole. Right. So that's got to be put out there to be some additional treasuries into the market. So with a flood of treasuries going into the market, that's actually what raises interest rates. The, the Fed doesn't control interest rates. Interest rates are a natural function. Still part of the market. Right. So, so when you flood the system, then interest rates have to come up because you have to entice people to want to buy these things. And with inflation running at what's going to be 9% before you know it, and we start putting in the March and April data. When you see inflation at 9%, by the way, the federal government calculates it. So if you 
which <laughs> is also a lie. So it's probably closer to 15%. Well, explain that because I, I believe that too. So yeah, you, let's you talk can, about CPI for one second. You can go to shadowstats.com. There's a gentleman there, John Williams, I think his name is. And he tracks CPI based on the current calculation, the 1990 CPI calculation, and the 1980 CPI calculation. And the 1980 calculation for today's numbers is 15%. So we have 15% inflation if you use the same calculation that they did in the 70s and the early 80s. And so when they say, oh, we have the same, we haven't had this high inflation since the 80s, it's actually false. We have the highest inflation in American history. If you use the same scorecard. Right. <laughs> so so maybe they'll just, I got an idea. So in order to lower inflation, it won't matter what we're paying out of our pocket. They'll just come up with another form of the CPI and just lower it automatically, right. and that'll be the narrative. But right. we're still going broke but Yeah, the fact is, it, if you have 30-year treasuries paying 2% interest and you got inflation at 12%, you're losing 10% a year. So nobody's going to want to buy those 30-year treasuries which means the federal government's going to be forced to raise interest rates or they're not going to be able to monetize the debt and you're going to have a crunch into the bond market. And the bond market is going to crash. Without a doubt, it will have to crash. And the stock market will fall right after it. And so will housing. Well, housing is, yeah. This is why they, going to fall why, just alongside the bond market. This is why Grantham is saying that this is a super bubble. It's not one piece. You can take all the bubbles in the past and you can tie them together. And by the way, I, I love the fact that he started talking about the Nikkei because as an investor, he was out. He got out of the Nikkei before the Nikkei crashed. You know, and again, he's he's a he's an institution to himself as far as his wealth of knowledge on these things. So so let's cut this one to the chase here and basically say that me as a as a seasoned cynical baby boomer who believes that there's no way out here, right? I think there's only, there's two directions. There's no door three. Door one is the the Fed tries to keep inflation in check and jacks up interest rates and breaks everything. And by the way, let's, let's tackle that a little more because they will not be able to tackle inflation by raising rates a half a point, quarter point, half a point, oh, 100 billion a month, 100 billion a month. It but, would have to be like Paul Volcker style, um, rates over 20%, you know, dropping $300 billion of treasuries a month and, and mortgage-backed securities, it would have to be so much significantly higher than what they're talking about now to actually fight inflation that the market would be would be cut in half or more. So they could break it just by trying to fix it. They don't need, they don't even get a chance to fix it. They right. could just break it. Which means we're still going to have the inflation. So that's that's scenario one. That's no win one. No win two is that they try to fix it. And it breaks. And they give up. No, and they fix it again. <laughs> they go back and they try to do it all right, over again. Right, they give up on trying to fix the inflation problem, go back to QE, go back to 0% interest rates. QE5 is going to be even larger than QE4, so they'll probably tack on $10 trillion, $15 trillion to the balance sheet. Balance sheet will be $25 trillion. And then they'll have the same problem over again, but inflation, instead of being 12%, is going to be 25%. Well, it's the old saying, don't try to hit, don't try to miss the squirrel and hit the tree. So here they try to fix it and bang, they go into the tree and they break it either way. So what's door three? Is there a favorable way out? What's the, what's the answer? Is there, is there a way that everyone today listening can just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bet on door three and everything's going to be okay. Is well, there that is a what a baby boom, boomer should be doing right There's now? There's a door three, but it, it's not a good one. Well, I was looking for a good door. I'm, everyone's listening for the good news. What's the option? Because people are are 
inherently looking for the optimistic side to feed the greed that they have I will in, just, her, in their yeah, bodies. So there is no good option, right? Q1 or option one, they fix it. Which is, I would well, blow Option it. one is the best up. solution. Option one is you fight inflation and you destroy the market. And you, like a forest fire, you burn out all the bad dead wood. You burn out the malinvestment. You let it torch up. People lose their jobs, their houses, everything. You let it all burn down and the new growth will come in, and it'll be a much healthier economy, and it's the only way that we come out. So as ultimately, the, that has to happen at some point. Well, that's my door three, so it doesn't have to happen. See, so door one, that happens, and I would vote for that. Uh, and I don't, I, I would push that I don't think that they have the, the gall to do it, but, but I would vote for that. Door two, they try it. They break it slightly. Market falls 15%. They give up. They back it down to zero percent interest. They start buying it. They or blow. Negative. A, they blow a bigger bubble. Oh god! And then, and then they they confront the same option. Maybe two <clears throat> years down the road, right? Or three years. I mean, heck, they can keep doing it until the the rest of the world so, says go to hell. You're not right. getting away with this anymore. So door three is to your point of what the woman was saying on the 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 news channel the other day is you. You don't try and fix inflation, and instead you just start implementing price controls and and trying to fix inflation that way and go into where the Fed buys everything, and the Fed becomes the biggest owner in every company and every bond and everything. They just own everything, and then you just basically have a state-owned enterprise with price controls and digital currencies that are programmed to control inflation through through price fixing. So some so form that, of capitalistic it's socialism, uh, communism. Fascism. Fascism is probably the closest thing you'll, you'll call to it. But that, so, so that, again, that doesn't work in a world economy anymore. That only works because you can't spread that wealth. You can't go around the world and do that. You're, no, that's the worst Everybody option. else would just be saying, well, how do these Americans get away with this crap? Well, and, yeah, you would. we would lose our world reserve currency status, and you would basically, we would go to like a socialist country. I mean, that that in essence... So this would, would be rationing of everything. You, you get this to eat Red this lines, month. Yep, and exactly. Yeah, you get the that that stupid government crypto that they can decide what you can spend your money on. But Boy, again, that one comes that's, that's what I'm talking about is unless you fight inflation, you go down that path. It's it's so we are at a point mm. where they have to, they have to fix this or you, or, or it's, you go down that path. So folks, there's, this is an obsession to make you scared. This is an awakening because the majority of people will not, be ready for this. You can, you know, it's like the movie, the matrix. You can take the red or the blue pill at this point. The question is, do you want to know? And do you want to do something about it? Or is it better not to know and just let it run you over like a freight train? I, I don't think that the latter is something people really want to do. And it's not necessary. The baby boomer is a transitional generation between people that live to 70, 75, 80 years old, and people that live to 115 years old. We are that transitional generation. We've been gifted this amazing amount of money that has been that has been donated to our cause through the reckless government spending and all these QE crap that Brian's talking about. We're that transitional generation where we can either get it right and move on and do well for ourselves and our family. Or we can just ignore it and be part of the casualties of, of that story when it's written someday. I hope that by listening to this podcast, you can be the ones that get it and will stop listening to the, to the CNBC bulls, 
for the first time, Jim Cramer, I started the webinar with Jim Cramer, not a huge fan. First time I've heard him be bearish in a big way was the day before the webinar. Um, Dow was down 281, something like that. When Jim Cramer goes bear, you better run for the gun because it's coming. This is something that he has come to the same conclusions that we've come with. And it's not just us. And, and it's not just Grantham, you know, the, the, the brilliant minds that have the seasoning of history to, to make their forward predictions with that. That's what Grantham brings. That's why I want you to watch that video. It's that important. And I, I may even go a little bit more push on this and send everybody that's in my database a copy, a link to that video, because I think it's a must watch for every baby boomer that's out there. So we're, we're concerned, but we don't know when. That's the problem is we, we know these things are, are aligning. We don't know when it should happen. I have a question, Brian, and, and this might be tough mm-hmm. because you're a financial advisor. Why is it that the people that I'm talking to are not getting calls from their financial advisors? Why is it they don't have any clue of what we're talking about, right? They're not stitching this together Again, I don't manage money. I, I do try to to bring information to people, but I'm not an advisor. I'm not managing money. Why is it that people are not being are not being exposed to these concerns in mass? Right. I don't find people that are, yeah, that are listening think, to this. I mean, I think majority of financial advisors don't understand it. So that's probably a big part of it. Um but the consequences here are are potentially But if you look at the dire. market in general, the stock market, both the stock and the bond market, are crashing, or or are at a point where they definitely can. But begin it doesn't to crash. feel that way because today the market—I don't know if it closes up, but it was up when before we sat down. Well, so it, why it, the hell is the flat. market it's, up if all this is down. going on? The the stock market and the bond market are both down year to date. Well, you know, That's you know what Jeremy point. said in the video. He actually said he goes, "There's a lot of rallies in a crash." Yeah, yeah, relief rally. Uh, you know, bear markets fall a slope of hope and bull markets climb a wall of worry, right? So when oh, you like that. when Very you go poetic. down a bear market, it does fall a slope of hope. So you're going to have runs up and, and relief rallies and all types of stuff. But the fact is the stock and the bond market are both down year to date, um, both registered, you know, some of the worst quarters in, in history. Um, and it's because we're in a rising interest rate environment and because that's undeniable, effect, undeniable announced. Yep. But now happening. we're talking about how, and boy, I'm going to win that silver bar from you. The uh, Brian and I have a wager about the interest rates. He thinks it's going to break too soon. I think that they're going to get, I think they're going to get a couple points. I think there'll be multiple. I don't remember I was, what the bet was. Was it 1%? No, it was one, one silver bar. Yeah. But what was the bet? I was saying that they wouldn't get above what? Oh, you said they were just going to do a quarter point and quit because everybody's going to freak I out. I thought it was one percent. I, I said they're. I well, think I'll it, even give you the one yeah, percent. You can have the one percent. The, the and I already bought my silver bar, so you better get yours on order. Yeah, twenty four twenty twenty four dollars an ounce right now. Yeah, all commodity prices are going up. I should buy that soon. It's fun too, by the way. Buying silver is kind of fun, even if you're not doing it to be an investor. I think it's a great way to to. Uh, gift people things of value, right? You can give them a stupid little Amazon gift card for a hundred bucks or 150 bucks, or you give them a really nice five ounce silver bar. I'm, I'm doing the silver bars, but the, the, the initial bet, not the initial bet, but I was of the belief that we would have had a half a point on the first raise by the fed. 
that got changed. I changed that because as soon as the the uh, Russian forces did what I didn't think they were going to do, I didn't think they were actually going to march into Ukraine. I thought they were just going to stand there like, like uh, uh, there was a, a story one time. Michael Jackson met the chairman of Sony Records, and Michael wanted to be a movie star, and the chairman of Sony was trying to figure out how to tell Michael Jackson, you're not going in the movies, just keep making music. And Michael Jackson brought the chairman up and he had this big plan, you know, like a snake cage, whatever you call those things that you keep reptiles in. And in the reptile cage was this massive snake. And in a corner was a little mouse. And, you know, he's watching it. And Michael says, you know, watch what happens. And, and, the guy's like, well, God, what, what's going to happen here? And Michael says, oh, oh, no, the snake's not going to do anything aggressive. He said the snake is going to scare the mouse so much that it'll just freeze in fear and not go anywhere. And the, the Sony guy was like, okay, Michael, maybe you're ready for the movie. Unfortunately, we all know what happened to Michael Jackson. There, there, are, there are things that we should be preparing for that may not be obvious, right? The mouse, I would have thought the snake would have just bit the mouse and ate it and, and swallowed it. But that wasn't the technique, right? The technique was slow, painful fear to kill the mouse. You shouldn't let this be something that you're not aware of. It's not something you should be letting just catch you by surprise. And I'm trying to wrap because Anthony's giving me the, uh, you, you, you guys are too long. But I also said this might not, might not be 30 minutes, Ant. Um, he's got a little thing that he slides on our monitor. 42 minutes we're into. I hope Joe Rogan does three hours. So, oh, I could go all day because I, I think that this is exactly what I've been preparing for, for so long. And I'm not Jubilee here. I'm, I'm, I'm not jubilant in the pain that's coming because I think the people that have been listening and I've noticed the change in a lot of the people that we've been talking to as of late, that they're more receptive to the fear now. For but, sure. But why? And I, I know you saw the email I sent out earlier today. And again, I, I think everybody should start thinking about a different way of communicating to their financial professionals. Number one, there's a there's economics at play here, right? And a financial advisor, the fiduciary. And again, this isn't going to throw stones at Brian. But in general, fiduciaries, which is big. You watch a Ken Fisher commercial. They can't say fiduciary more times in that commercial. Well, they might be putting themselves in a really bad box right now because as a fiduciary, the real word fiduciary before they stole it for people who manage money, fiduciary just means that I have a, a responsibility that is more than just moral. I have a responsibility to do the right thing by someone else. That's what a fiduciary is. Well, now they've adjusted it. Now it means you're a financial advisor. So let's just go with that. Financial advisors in, by the most part, get paid to manage your dollars they get paid a small piece to manage your portfolio. Whether it's up or down, they just get this managed amount of money. That's why they say, well, we're not commissioned salespeople. No, because they're getting paid constantly. That's how financial advisors get paid. And the challenge for financial advisors, and this is something I want you all to think about. The challenge is, if your advisor doesn't believe in what we're talking about, that may be a good reason not to have that financial advisor. And by the way, Fisher is not budging right now. I just had a call with a client who said, his advisor saying, 
Nothing to worry about. There's nothing going on here. It reminds me of the alley. What's his name? <laughs> Saying it's a peaceful demonstration. Don't bombs are blowing up behind them. Don't pay attention to the fires behind me. It's a peaceful demonstration. But that's what I think they're going to run into here. Is the advisors, Fisher's people, are telling their clients as of yesterday, don't worry, everything is going to. I think be they use the okay. word V-shaped recovery. V-shaped recovery. Oh, sure. This In is a video that they put out. Sure, that's exactly what's going on here. This is like a pandemic that catches the world. In a, in a heated recovery. And I, and I don't surprise. even understand how that is. You, you you look at, we haven't even started raising interest rates in any significant way. Silly. Haven't started un- unloading the balance sheet at all. But and, people trust them, Brian. That's the we're, problem we're is they trust a, these folks. The bottom. And they're listening to this and they're saying, oh, okay. Well, let me just go back to my life. It's almost time to mow the grass now. It's getting nice outside. And they just take it and they go with it and they say, okay. But you know what? What if the fiduciary was actually just getting paid a flat sum of money to be your your expert, your consultant. Would they be doing the same thing they're doing right now? Or would they say, I think maybe it's time to sit in some cash. I think it's time to look at some alter- alternatives to bonds and stocks to, to preserve wealth and, and still have some upside potential. Would they do that or would they maintain this fear no evil institutional by the way it is in the video it's not just me saying this you will hear that in the video i'm referencing rothwebinar.com link will be there by the time you hear this this podcast would it be a different story if you offered your financial advisors i don't know what's fair three grand a year four grand a year five grand a year to manage your money most of you are probably paying at least that amount of money to your advisor would there be different guidance coming out today and is it fair for a financial advisor because of this fiduciary label that they can't get paid if they put you in some place safe? Ask that question. Ask your advisor, say, you know, hey, I don't want you to work for nothing. And I appreciate you talking to me like this, but I don't want you to go broke. <laughs> I don't want all of your clients that you put into cash out of the market to protect them from the from the gauntlet that could be a three, four year down you don't want your advisor to go broke, but unfortunately, we've all become so damn fee sensitive, but it's okay that they just get paid when your money's in the gun sights of a, of a potential crash, unlike even the year 2000, because that's okay. That's how fiduciaries get paid. I think it's time to have that challenging conversation with your advisor. And again, I'm for the consumer here. I'm not, I'm not trying to be for anybody else but the, but the baby boomer, to be very honest. That's all I'm worried about. I think young people need this crash. I think Brian's generation, they need us to, to go through some bad pain as, as retirees. But ask your advisor, start challenging the conversation with the things that you're hearing here. And if you expose yourself to the things on the internet, like the video I will share with you, keep leveraging those kind of conversations and become more empowered to have the conversation. It's about you. It's not about how much you like your advisor. It has nothing to do with liking somebody. It's business when you're dealing with somebody that's managing your money. You could still like them. You could send them a reverse the order, send them a Christmas card, send them a, send them a box of donuts. Well, you know, you could just change the, the way the, the relationship is run. But I, 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 urge you to not ignore these things that we're talking about. I urge you to investigate how bad it could possibly get. Super bubble, great depression. These 
are the things coming out of a gentleman who hasn't been wrong about bubbles since bubbles. And I, I think we have to start thinking a little bit differently. We released a wealth span report. Last topic I want to cover. We released a wealth span report in, I'm going to call it a, a, a little post beta form, right? It's not exactly completely done yet. It's an eye-opening report. It will show you if you expose yourself too much to risk for hopeful wins versus being conservative and careful and the spread in years, because the way the Wellspan report is, we, we try to help you know when your financial resources, your savings, will expire. When will it run out? Your income can go for the rest of your life, but your wealth could run out. And getting this wrong could be a 40-year difference between having enough money to live a long, healthy, happy life or running out of money because you bet wrong. And I don't think you should be exposed to that. I think you should have a conversation. If you go to RothWebinar.com and you haven't yet looked into the Wealthspan report, please do so. It's a sponsored thing. You don't have to pay for it. It'll give you a wonderful, um, a wonderful amount of talking points so that you can have a conversation with your advisor and say, I am concerned. Start with that. Do not get pacified. Do not listen to you're in it for the long haul. That's not, you know what? You actually should be planning to live in for, to live for the long haul, which is all the more reason why you're not in it for the long haul with the, with the standard response from the investment community. Again, I'm not an advisor, and I, I'd happily communicate my position as a layman to any financial advisor who's trying to tell me that this is a time for baby boomers to keep the gas pedal to the floor. So, Brian, I want to thank you for coming in and talking about the yeah. difficult, difficult topic. By the way, are, you, are the majority of your clients in the market or out of the market? Definitely out of the market when it comes to uh, equities and stocks. And you're good with that? Absolutely. No FOMO, as my daughter once told me. FOMO, <laughs> fear of missing out, not a problem for you? No. Using a science? That. Absolutely. All right, stick yeah. with that. I think that's good. So I hope this makes sense to everyone. I'm trying, guys. I, I, want, I want to help you. I know, again... I know what the pain is of failing. It's terrible. You don't want to fail in retirement. You don't want to watch that mountain of money slowly, slowly erode away or quickly erode away. So until next time, I'm Brett Sasso, on behalf of Brian Nicolazen, everyone here from Retirement Architecture, have a wonderful weekend. Get some sunshine. Hello, spring. And uh, we'll keep it coming. You just keep, keep studying, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you at some point. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.